Good afternoon. I hope that you are not too sleepy. I had to skip lunch, so I don't know what you ate, but I hope it was nice. And now uh, we, we continue the, the same session that we started uh, uh, earlier on with um, the paper of Sahar Hunaydi, which is the session on international legitimacy and Britain's responsibility for the Palestinian tragedy. And uh, our next speaker had another problem, not losing his cords, but he lost his father-in-law yesterday. So he thought what was not very decent not to be there for the burial today, so he's very sorry. And I have to say that I am very happy to meet uh, the son of one of our brightest uh, professors at Birzeit, not because he's not an important one himself, but uh, uh, Roger Hikos is very dear to my heart and to the heart of many in IPS. And Dr. Alexi Wick is associate professor of history at UB, and he spoke such good Arabic that after, after I asked him where he learned, he told me in Palestine with my, my family who lives there, and it's uh, Roger Hickok's family. So he will do us the pleasure and the tough job of uh, reading a paper he did not write, but I'm, no, I'm sure that uh, Mr. Rogan's uh, paper is, uh, is interesting. He's an Oxford professor, um, specialist of uh, history, so I think that uh, there is much he can tell us. He is in a very important center. Many of you know that. Uh, it is St. Anthony's College at the Middle East Center. And uh, he is the author of the Arabs, the history, and another book, The Fall of the Ottomans, The Great War in the Middle East, 1914-1920. We go back to, to this period where all our present and part of our future was decided, which is from pre-war uh, or pre-mandate to mandate to Nakba. And uh, I'm sure that there is a lot that Mr. Rogan can tell us in his paper. Thank you. Fadal. Thank you, um, Leila. And uh, apologies to those who wanted to see Professor Eugene Rogan in the flesh. I can do nothing but uh, do my best in reading out his words. The Balfour Declaration in its wartime context. By 1914, most Europeans believed the Ottoman Empire to be in its death throes. In the five years following the Young Turk Revolution in 1908, Austria had annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, Crete had declared its unification with Greece, and Italy had seized Libya and the Dodecanese Islands. The former Balkan possessions of the Ottoman Empire made common cause against Turkey in the First Balkan War in which the Ottomans lost all their remaining European territories except a small stretch of Thrace, the hinterlands of the Ottoman capital, Istanbul. Although the Ottomans managed to regain Edirne in the Second Balkan War and pushed their Thracian borders back to the frontiers that the modern Turkish Republic still enjoys with Bulgaria and Greece, contemporary European analysts argued that the once mighty Turkish empire had been reduced to such weakness that it could not withstand even the threat posed by its little Balkan neighbors. With the July crisis in 1914 and the Ottoman entry into the Great War in alliance with Germany and Austria at the end of October that same year, the Entente powers began to assert active claims on Ottoman territory. They did so to reward their own war effort against the central powers, Ottoman territories, was Ottoman territory was described by British, French, and Russian diplomats as war prizes. 
Yet they sought to do so in a way to achieve a balance of power between the wartime allies, to ensure that all parties came away from the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire sufficiently satisfied with their share. And finally, they promised Ottoman territory to secure alliances with powers, great and small, who might make a decisive contribution to an Entente victory. The success of the wartime partition diplomacy could be judged first by whether or not the Entente powers actually won the war, and if the division of spoils established a mutually agreeable post-war balance of power between the British, French, and Russian empires. For, as the British officials recognized in June 1915, their own ambitions in Asiatic Turkey had to respect, quote, the known or understood aspirations of those who are our allies today, i.e. France and Russia, and this continues the quote, but may be our competitors tomorrow, end quote. The British were particularly concerned to avoid future imperial conflicts provoked by partition resentments. The wartime partition process began with the Constantinople Agreement of March 1915 followed by the Hussein MacMahon correspondence in 1915-1916, the Sykes-Picot Agreement in 1916, the tripartite agreement of Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne of April to September 1917, the Balfour Declaration of 1917, and the final distribution agreed at San Remo in 1920. Thus, the wartime partition agreements constituted a process that ran the length of the war and into the post-war peace conference. We should not focus too much on the Balfour Declaration itself, but see that agreement as a milestone in a process that extended over a five-year period and ultimately produced a Middle East quite different from the one initially agreed between the Allies. Before examining the individual agreements, let's agree on the basic framework of analysis. First, it is essential to remember that the wartime partition process was a product of wartime. None of the agreements concluded would have been conceivable in peacetime. So extensive and extraordinary was the scope of the pledges. <clears throat> Hence, arguments about whether or not the British sympathized with Arabist or Zionist ambitions in themselves are mistaken, overlooking the British imperative to secure victory in the First World War. Left to their own devices, the British would never have encouraged any national movement, Arab or Zionist, for the threat such movements would pose to their empire. And the British clearly intended for their empire to long outlive the First World War. Second, the terms and timing of each agreement was shaped by the wartime context at that moment. It is essential to refer to military developments on both the Western and the Ottoman fronts to understand the specifics of each constituent agreement in the wartime diplomacy. The content of each agreement was shaped by the constraints of war rather than any long-standing diplomatic priorities. The wartime agreements were part of the tactics of war, designed either to retain the commitment of Entente allies through the promise of prizes in Ottoman territory, or else to win over new allies like the Arabs and the, or the Zionists, who, it was believed, might make a decisive contribution towards an Entente victory. Under conditions of total war, the British, French, and Russians were willing to say whatever it took and promise anything to anyone who might exercise a positive influence on the Entente power war effort and break the deadlock on the Western Front. 
It is against this background that the Balfour Declaration and other conflicting, conflicting wartime agreements should be understood. Given the conditions under which they were drafted and the balance of power priorities by which these agreements were shaped, with no concern for securing the consent of the peoples concerned, it is no wonder that the wartime partition plans left the Middle East the most volatile region to emerge from the First World War. It was Russia, with the clearest idea of its ambitions in Ottoman territory, that initiated the Western partition diplomacy, the wartime partition diplomacy. Even before the outbreak of World War I, the Russian Council of Ministers agreed in February 1914, the annexation of Constantinople and the straits linking the, the Black Sea and the Mediterranean as a matter of priority, and concurred that the best opportunity to seize these geostrategic territories would arise in the context of a general European war. Tsar Nicholas II approved his cabinet's recommendations in April 1914 and committed his government to creating the necessary forces to occupy Istanbul and the Straits at the earliest, earliest possible opportunity. The outbreak of the Great War provided precise, precisely the sort of general European war that the Russians hoped might secure for them Constantinople. It was the planning of the Dardanelles campaign that initiated wartime negotiations between the Allies. Against the background of the Anglo-French naval attack on the Dardanelles, the Tsar's government formally sought its allies' recognition of Russian claims to Turkish territory, the Constantinople Agreement. On the 4th of March, 1915, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Sazonov wrote to the ambassadors of Britain and France seeking allied agreement on, quote, the question of Constantinople and of the Straits in line with the time-honored aspirations of Russia, end quote. Sazonov spelled out the boundaries of the territory Russia sought, the city of Istanbul, the European shores of the Bosphorus, the Sea of Marmara, the Dard and the Dardanelles, and Ottoman Thrace up to the Enes Midye line, the boundary imposed on the defeated Ottomans at the end of the First Balkan War in 1912. This would have left the Asian side of the Straits, the Asian half of Istanbul, and the Asian coasts of, the Mar of Marmara under Ottoman rule, but ensured Russian domination over the vital waterways linking the Black Sea and the Mediterranean. Whitehall seemed caught by surprise by Russia's demands. Interestingly, the British government entered World War I with no clear territorial demands in Ottoman domains. On the 12th of March, 1915, British Britain conceded what it termed, quote, the richest prize of the entire war, end quote, to Russia while reserving the right to stake its own claims to Ottoman territory in due course, once it had worked out precisely what it wanted. France was better prepared. It demanded Syria, the Gulf of Alexandretta, and Cilicia, the coastal region around the southeastern Turkish city of Adana, in return for recognizing Russian claims to Constantinople and the Straits. These claims and Britain's deferral were formalized in a series of documents exchanged between the 4th of March and the 10th of April 1915 that came to be known as the Constantinople Agreement, the first of our wartime partition plans for the Ottoman Empire. A creature of the Great War, the Constantinople Agreement fell victim to Allied failures. The Ottoman defeat of the Allied campaign in Gallipoli spared Istanbul from occupation until the war's end, and the Russian Revolution in 1917 ultimately resulted in the Bolshevik renunciation of all Russian claims to Ottoman territory, 
For these reasons, the Constantinople Agreement is often neglected in our discussions of wartime partition plans. But the basic principles of a post-war dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire, of Russian claims to Constantinople and the Straits, French claims to Syria, and British, claim, British rights to claim an equally significant patch of territory were established already in March 1915. Had the Allies succeeded in the Dardanelles campaign and knocked the Ottomans out of the war in the spring of 1915, the diplomacy would have gone no further. However, as British war efforts in Gallipoli and in Mesopotamia were derailed by determined Ottoman defense, Britain resumed the partition diplomacy later in 1915 in a bid to secure an alliance with the Sharifs of Mecca to promote an Arab revolt that would weaken the Ottoman Empire from within. The Hussein MacMahon correspondence. Following the Ottoman entry into the war, both the Turks and the British actively courted the loyalty of the Emir of Mecca. As he was the highest ranking Muslim official in the Arab world, the Ottomans sought Sharif Hussein's endorsement of the Sultan's Jihad, a wartime strategy to turn colonial Muslims against the British, French, and Russian empires. While the young Turks pressed Sharif Hussein to support the Ottoman Jihad, the British were, in the words of an early Arab nationalist, determined to, quote, rob the call to holy war of its principal thunderbolt, end quote, by striking an agreement with Sharif Hussein themselves. In November 1914, Storrs wrote to Sharif Hussein's son, Abdullah, in Kitchener's name to secure a tacit alliance. If the Sharif and the Arab peoples would give their support to the British war effort, Kitchener pledged Britain's guarantee of Arab independence and protection from external aggression. Abdullah responded in July 1915, demanding clarity on details, setting out claims to vast territorial demands, embracing all of Syria, Iraq, and Arabia. It was the opening of negotiations towards a wartime alliance between Britain and the Hashemites. Wartime exigencies shaped the terms and the timing of the Hussein MacMahon correspondence. When Abdullah's letter reached Ronald's stores in July 1915, the British were still confident of defeating the Ottomans at Gallipoli and taking the imperial capital. And the British found the Sharif's territorial claims excessive. Quote, his pretensions are in every way exaggerated. End quote. Sir Henry MacMahon, the British High Commissioner in Egypt, wrote to London. Yet the failure of the August offensive in Gallipoli, when the Ottomans withstood the Allied landings in Suvla Bay, forced the British to reconsider their eastern war strategies. The British were keen to keep the door open to Sharif Hussein and his sons and to the tantalizing prospect of a major internal rebellion. MacMahon addressed his response to Abdullah's letter to the Amir of Mecca directly. Quote, we have the honor to thank you for your frank expressions of the sincerity of your feeling towards England. He began his letter of, 30, of the 30th of August. He reconfirmed Kitchener's earlier pledge of support Quote, for the independence of Arabia and its inhabitants, together with our approval of the Arab Caliphate when it should be proclaimed, end quote. He refused, however, to get drawn into discussions of boundaries, arguing that it was, quote, premature to consume our time in discussing such details in the heat of war, end quote. The tone of Sharif Hussein's response to McMahon, dashed off by return post on the 9th of September, left little doubt to the Amit's position. He protested the ambiguity and the tone of coldness and hesitation with which the High Commissioner refused to commit an Arab on Arab boundaries. He disavowed personal ambition and claimed to speak on behalf of the Arab people as a whole. 
Open quote. I am confident that your excellency will not doubt that it is not I personally who am demanding of these limits, which include only our race, but that they are all proposals of the people. End quote. As the Allies' position in the Dardanelles grew increasingly untenable in the autumn of 1915, British officials in Cairo resumed negotiations with the Hashemites with a new sense of urgency. Evacuation of Gallipoli would deal the Turks a major victory and free whole Ottoman divisions for redeployment on to other fronts. Under these circumstances, an agreement with the Hashemites took on added importance. Sir Henry McMahon recognized he would have to respond to the Sharif's territorial claims in order to strike a deal. In his letter of 24th of October 1915, the High Commissioner sought to square British and French interests in the Middle East with, uh, with the Sharif's territorial demands. The British government's first concern was to preserve its special relations with the Arab sheikhdoms of the Persian Gulf. The rulers of Oman, the Trucial states, Qatar, Bahrain, and Kuwait, as well as Ibn Saud in Central and Eastern Arabia, were British protégés bound by treaties dating back, dating back to the early 19th century. Sir Henry McMahon thus pledged his government's support of the Sharif's boundaries, quote, without prejudice to our existing treaties with Arab chiefs, end quote. With the Mesopotamia campaign, the British had drawn the Ottoman provinces of Basra and Baghdad into their Persian Gulf sphere of, inter of interest. Without staking an explicitly colonial claim to Iraq, Sir Henry asserted that the established position and interests of Great Britain necessitated special administrative arrangements to secure the provinces of Baghdad and Basra, quote, from foreign aggression, to promote the welfare of the local populations, and to safeguard our mutual economic interests, end quote. In essence, the integration of Mesopotamia into Britain's trucial system in the Persian Gulf. Finally, Sir Henry had to ensure he made no commitments to the Arabs that would contravene prior Anglo-French agreements, particularly the Constantinople Agreement of March 1915, in which the French government had asserted its claim to Syria and Cilicia. McMahon knew that the full French demands to Syria and Cilicia would scuttle any agreement with Sharif Hussein, and that any paring down of French claims would provoke the fury of Paris. Where clarity would prove counterproductive, Sir Henry McMahon opted for obscurity. The High Commissioner withheld British recognition of, quote, the two districts of Mersin and Alexandretta and portions of Syria lying to the west of the districts of Damascus, Homs, Hama, and Aleppo, end quote, from the territory claimed by the Hashemites on the spurious grounds that those territories were not, their words obviously, purely Arab. It was a transparent bid to detach Arab territory from British pledges to the Sharif that would bedevil future relations between Britain, France, and the Arab world, not least over whether this formula included Palestine among the lands slated for independent Arab rule. Yet such, a commitment, such was the commitment the British High Commissioner made to Sharif Hussein. Quote, Subject to the above modifications, Sir Henry asserted, Great Britain is prepared to recognize and support the independence of the Arabs in all the regions within the limits demanded by the Sharif of Mecca, end quote. In subsequent correspondence, exchanged between the 5th of November 1915 and the 10th of March 1916, Sir Henry McMahon concluded a wartime alliance with Sharif Hussein of Mecca. The weeks that passed between their letters were punctuated by British defeats 
in both the Dardanelles and Mesopotamia. McMahon's letter of the 14th of December followed both the British cabinet's decision to evacuate the Suvla and Anzac positions in Gallipoli on the 7th of December and the beginning of the siege of Kut al-Amara on the 8th of December. The High Commissioner's letter of the 25th of January 1916 followed the final evacuation of Gallipoli on the 9th of January. Unsurprisingly, McMahon's last letter, dated the 10th of March, noted British victories over the Sanusi, tribesmen in Egypt, and Russian victories in Erzurum, without mentioning the in impending surrender at Kut. He must have felt his hand weakened by his string, this string of British defeats. Knowing that he was negotiating with a beleaguered Britain, Sharif Hussein drove a hard bargain. Instead of seeking recognition of Arab independence, the Amir increasingly wrote of an Arab kingdom and of himself as its chosen, chosen leader. Yet the Amir of Mecca consented to signif significant territorial compromises. He claimed the Iraqi vilayets as integral parts of the future Arab kingdom, but consented to leave those districts now occupied by the British troops under British administration for, quote, a short time in return for a suitable sum paid as compensation to the Arab kingdom for the period of occupation. French claims to Syria were harder for the Amir, Amir to accept. Syrian provinces, he insisted, were purely Arab and could not be excluded from the Arab kingdom. Yet in the course of their exchange, Sharif Hussein conceded he wished, quote, to avoid what may possibly injure the alliance of Great Britain and France and the agreement made between them during the present wars and calamities, end quote. However, he warned McMahon, open quote, at the first opportunity after this war is finished, we shall ask you for what we now leave to France in Beirut and its coasts, end quote. The remainder of the correspondence focused on the material needs for a revolt, the gold, grain, and guns, to sustain the future Arab war effort against the Turks. Sir Henry McMahon could not have done better. He succeeded in concluding an agreement with the Sharif of Mecca, excluding Syri Syrian territory claimed by the French and the Iraqi, Iraqi provinces the British wished to add to its own empire. The fact that the boundaries of the territories conceded in the Hussein McMahon correspondence were vague was an advantage in wartime Anglo-Arab relations. In the interest of Anglo-French relations, though a more precise agreement on the post-war partition of Arab lands was needed. Q. Sykes-Picot Agreement. The British government was bound to seek French agreement on promises made to Sharif Hussein. In October 1915, after authorizing McMahon's territorial concessions to Sharif Hussein, the Foreign Office requested that the French government send negotiators to London to put some clearly defined boundaries to French claims in Syria. The French Foreign Minister designated the former Consul General in Beirut, Charles-François-Georges Picot, to negotiate with Sir Mark Sykes, Lord Kitchener's Middle East advisor, in drafting a mutually acceptable post-war partition of Arab lands. The fact that the British and the French were dividing amongst themselves lands the that Sharif Hussein was claiming for the future Arab kingdom has led many historians to denounce the Sykes-Picot agreement as an outrageous example of, of imperial perfidy, none more eloquently than George Antonius, open quote. The Sykes-Picot agreement is a shocking document. It is not only the product of greed at its worst, that is to say of greed, allied to suspicion, and so leading to stupidity. It also stands out as a startling piece of double dealing, end quote. Yet for Britain and France, 
whose past imperial rivalries had nearly led them to war, the Sykes-Picot Agreement was an essential exercise for France to define precisely the territories it claimed in Cilicia and Syria, and for Britain to stake its claim in Mesopotamia, the lands Sir Henry MacMahon tried to exclude from his pledge to Sharif Hussein. There are many misconceptions about the Sykes-Picot Agreement. A century later, many still believe the agreement set the borders of the modern Middle East. In fact, the map as drawn by Sykes and Picot bears no resemblance to the Middle East today. Instead, it defines areas of colonial domination in Syria and Mesopotamia, in which France and Britain were free, quote, to establish such direct or indirect administration or control as they desired. In the blue area, France laid claim to the eastern Mediterranean coastline, stretching from Mersin and Adana around the Gulf of Alexandretta, and southward through the shores of modern Syria and Lebanon to the ancient port town of Tyre. The French also claimed an extensive part of eastern Anatolia to a point north of Sivas and to the east of Diyarbakir and Mardin, all towns comfortably inside the modern Turkish Republic. In the red areas, the British secured recognition of their claim to the Iraqi provinces of Basra and Baghdad. The vast lands between the blue and red areas were divided into separate zones in which Britain and France would exercise informal influence. Zone A placed the major inland cities of Syria, Aleppo, Homs, Hama, Damascus, as well as the northern Iraqi city of Mosul, under indirect French control. The British claimed informal empire over Zone B, which spanned the deserts of northern Arabia from Iraq to the Sinai frontiers of Egypt. These two zones were to be part of, quote, an independent Arab state or confederation of Arab states under the suzerainty of an Arab chief, end quote. A formula that fell well short of Sir Henry MacMahon's pledges to Sharif Hussein. The one area on which the British and French could not agree was Palestine. They could not resolve their conflicting claims and anticipated that Russian ambitions would further complicate negotiations. Sykes and Picot decided to paint the map of Palestine brown to distinguish it from the red and blue areas and proposed an international administration whose ultimate shape would only be decided in negotiations with Russia, the other allies, and the representatives of the Sharif of Mecca, the only explicit mention of Sharif Hussein in the Sykes-Picot Agreement. In March 1916, Sykes and Picot traveled to Russia to secure their Entente Allies Agreement to the Partition Plan. In addition to their earlier claims to the Straits in Constantinople, confirmed in the 1915 Constantinople Agreement, the Tsar's ministers sought British and French recognition of the annexation of the Turkish territories that the Russian army had recently overrun. Erzurum, the Black Seaport of Trabzon, the shattered city of Van, and Bitlis, as the price for the acquiescence to the terms of Sykes-Picot. With Russia's support secured by May 1916, the Allies had achieved a comprehensive agreement on the post-war partition of the Ottoman Empire. And for the moment, they managed to keep the whole matter secret from their Arab allies, Sharif Hussein and his sons. Sykes-Picot was in no sense a final document, but a work in progress. No sooner had it been signed that British officials denounced Sykes for having given too much to the French. Embarrassed, Sykes begged his colleagues to refer to the document as the Asia Minor Agreement and not as Sykes-Picot, in vain. The agreement would be subject to renegotiation from the moment it was drafted. 
The first challenge came from the Italians. And now the tripartite agreement of Saint-Jean-de-Maurienne. Italy joined the Entente powers in April 1915. When Rome learned about the Sykes-Picot agreement, the Italian government made demands for its share of Ottoman territory. The British, French, and Italians entered into negotiations in January 1917. The Russians, preoccupied by their revolution, did not participate and concluded the first revision to Sykes-Picot in a railway car in a village near the French-Italian Mediterranean frontier. According to the tripartite agreement, Italy secured formal control over a green zone, extended the length of the Turkish Mediterranean coastline from Mersin to Izmir to match the British red and French blue zones. These Italian demands would later be revised to give Greece, who entered the war in June 1917, control over territory ranging from Izmir into its Anatolian hinterlands. The British and French were growing increasingly bold in promising Ottoman territory to new allies while carefully, careful to protect their own declared interests. It wasn't until Britain established an interest in Palestine that they revised a central part of Sykes-Picot to their own advantage. <coughs> and now to the Balfour Declaration. On the 9th of November, two days after Allenby's forces entered Gaza, the Jewish Chronicle published a new British policy on Palestine. In a brief letter to Walter Rothschild, Dated the 2nd of February, Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour issued the famous declaration that would come to bear his name. The Balfour Declaration was an extraordinary commitment on the part of the British government. Its army had only just entered Palestine and was far from Jerusalem, and yet it felt sufficiently confident of success to make promises about what was still sovereign Ottoman territory. Of course, the British had been negotiating over Ottoman territory since the very start of the war. However, each of these previous partition plans had been kept secret. The Balfour Declaration was openly published in the, in the London press. Moreover, in promising Britain's best endeavors to achieve the establishment for a national home for the Jews, Balfour seemed to be violating the terms of previous agreements with Sharif Hussein and the French government. To further complicate things, it was Sir Mark Sykes, discredited architect of the Sykes-Picot Agreement, who had lobbied the British government to lend its support to the Jewish national movement. It was Sykes who left the meeting of the British War Cabinet on the 31st of October, 1917, to tell the Zionist leader, Chaim Weizmann, that the declaration had been approved. Quote, Dr. Weizmann, it's a boy. Like the other partition plans for the Ottoman Empire, the Balfour Declaration was a product of wartime considerations. Note that it was the war cabinet that approved the declaration, and it did so less to support Zionism than to harness Jewish influence to the British war effort. In supporting Zionism, members of the British government believed they would gain the support of influential Jews in the United States and Russia. America was a late entry into the war, its traditional isolationism making it a reluctant ally. And Russia's commitment to the war had been in doubt since the February Revolution and the Tsar's abdication in March 1917. Jews were believed to exercise significant influence over U.S. President Woodrow Wilson and, an, and over Prime Minister Alexander Kerensky's provisional government in Russia. If Jewish influence could keep these two powers actively engaged in the war, then it was in, Brit in, the Brit in Britain's interest to court Jewish favor by supporting Zionism. Finally, many of the, in the war cabinet wanted to revise the terms of Sykes-Picot. 
As already noted, a growing number of influential voices believed Sykes had simply given too much to the French. The British had fought too hard for Palestine to hand the territory over to an ill-defined international administration at war's end. Furthermore, the British had learned from wartime experience how a hostile power in Palestine could threaten the security of the Suez Canal. At war's end, the British wanted to ensure that Palestine came under British administration. The Zionists were natural allies in that project, their political ambitions inconceivable without a great power's support. On the face of it, Lord Balfour was offering Palestine to the Zionist movement. In fact, Lloyd George's government was using the Zionist movement to secure Palestine for British rule. And now, Professor Rogan's conclusion. As demonstrated in the 1915 Constantinople Agreement, Britain entered World War I with no territorial ambitions in Ottoman domains. In the course of the war, Britain was increasingly drawn into the battle of, on the Ottoman front, and its ambitions in Ottoman territories developed accordingly. At the times of Sykes-Picot, Britain's ambitions went no further than Mesopotamia, an oil-rich region that would complete, complete British domination of the Persian Gulf, a strategic hinterland of its empire in India. In the course of the Sinai and Palestine campaigns in 1916 and 1917, British commanders came to view Palestine as of geostrategic importance for the security of the Suez Canal. The war had demonstrated how a hostile power in Palestine could threaten the security of this vulnerable waterway. This recognition came after partition plans between Britain and its allies. France, Russia, and the Hashemites were already quite advanced. The Balfour Declaration advanced Britain's wartime goals in two ways. On the one hand, it was hoped that by supporting Zionism, the Lloyd George government would secure the support of the Jewish diaspora to activate America and re-energize revolutionary Russia to help win the Great War. On the other hand, the British hoped to seize the moral high ground in renegotiating the status of Palestine with its essential allies, France and Russia, by claiming to do so not in their own imperial interests to solve the Jewish question by restoring the Jewish people to their biblical homeland. In this sense, the Balfour Declaration was a way to renegotiate Sykes-Picot, changing Palestine's color on the map from international brown to British red. In the end, Britain's agreement with the Hashemites was no more based on Britain's commitment <coughs> to Arab national aspirations than the Balfour Declaration reflected British sympathy for Zionism. Both agreements were concluded to help with the war and to preserve and advance the interests of the British Empire after the war. And in the British Empire, there was no sympathy for any form of nationalism, Arab or Zionist. One need only remember Lord Islington's successful 1922 motion in the House of Lords that called for the repeal of the Balfour Declaration. Or Churchill's declaration in, 19, in the 1922 White Paper that the Balfour Declaration did not envision a Palestine as Jewish as England was English to realize that, far from advocating Jewish statehood, the framers of the Balfour Declaration were in it uniquely for the benefit of their empire. And so the paper ends. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Alexi, for uh, reading in a very uh, vivid way. And uh, we can tell Professor Rogan that he was very well represented. Uh, it's a fascinating paper, and it comes right after Mrs. Huneides, who is a totally different narrative of that period. And uh, I find it very fascinating that Professor uh, Rogan included how much the fate of the whole area 
was interlinked from Iraq to Jordan to Syria to Lebanon to Palestine and Egypt by an empire who wanted to inherit the maximum of a falling one, which was the Ottoman. I'll not say more because we have uh, Dr. Shafi Masri who is waiting to tell you his own reading, but I found it very challenging to have different readings. Uh, uh, Dr. Masri is a specialist of international relations, has worked both at AUB and LAU, and uh, has written so many books, I can't count them, on, on different uh, uh, subjects concerning international relations and international law, uh, whether on Lebanon or on Palestine, and he will be talking to you in Arabic. Fadal Doctor. Thank you. Uh, my paper my paper was written in Arabic, but if the majority here are more familiar with English, I can say it in English. So it's up to you to decide, and I'm ready. I wrote. Ah, وهذا ضمن اختصاصي في القانون الدولي أن أعلق ببعض كلمات فقط على مشروع أو إعلان الرئيس الأمريكي حول نقل السفارة وهذا طبعا غير داخل في مداخلتي ولكني أريد فقط ببضع كلمات أن هذا الذي أعلنه الرئيس الأمريكي فيه عدة مخالفات وفقاً لأحكام القانون الدولي المخالفة الأولى لما سبق للولايات المتحدة أن بادرت في بعض الأحيان سيما مسألة الدولتين إلى الاعتراف بالدولة الفلسطينية بشكل غير صريح والمخالفة الثانية لما سبقه من رؤساء آثر التأجيل لأن الإعلان كانوا يعرفون ما سيولد من ردود فعل غاضبة مخالفة الثانية الثالثة للقانون الدولي بالذات ذلك لأن المجلس الأمن وكذلك الجمعية العامة في العام 1980 أي عندما أعلنت إسرائيل ضم القدس الشرقية وجعل القدس الموحد عاصمة لها طبعا مجلس الأمن وبناء وهذا أمر هام آمل أن يفيق عليه اليوم المسؤولون عن منظمة التعاون الإسلامي وبناء لشكوى قدمتها أنذاك منظمة الدول الإسلامية قام مجلس الأمن بإصدار القرار 476 وأعلن القانون الإسرائيلي في ضم القدس الشرقية أنه باطل ويجب أن يلغى 
لأنه مخالف للأحكام القانون الدولي ولا سيما اتفاقية جنيف الرابعة كذلك فعلت الجمعية العامة آنذاك الولايات المتحدة آنذاك لم تضع فيتو على هذا القرار وإنما امتنعت عن التصويت فقط لأن أربع دول من الدول الدائمة العضوية أيدت هذا القرار في تصويتها امتنعت عن التصويت وكأنها أرادت أن يمر وهذا القرار لا يزال بمفاعيله لليوم طبعا ملزم ملزم لكل العالم وفقا للاجتهادات حول قرارات مجلس الامن. الان انتقل الى العنوان الذي اقترح علي قرار تقسيم فلسطين وشرعية قيام دولة إسرائيل المقصود هنا بقرار تقسيم فلسطين القرار رقم 181 الذي صدر في العام 1947 هذا القرار هو الذي وللمرة الأولى قرر تقسيم فلسطين إلى دولة عربية ودولة يهودية وإلى تدويل مدينة القدس مع خرائط مرفقة بهذا القرار ولا تزال هذه الخرائط لمن يحب أن يراها يرى القرار 181 مرفقة به هذه الخرائط مع أسماء القرى أيضا هذا القرار هو الذي استندت إليه إسرائيل عندما أعلنت استقلالها في 15 أيار 1948 وأكثر من هذا قال بنغوريون يومها أن القرار صادر عن الأمم المتحدة ولا يجوز التراجع عنه ولا نقضه في مع إعلان دولة إسرائيل هذا القرار إذا كان السند القانوني الوحيد الذي كان قائماً بالنسبة لإعلان دولة إسرائيل كل الأمور الأخرى أنها خلفت مثلاً دولة الانتداب هذا مخالف لأن الدولة المنتدب عليها كان يجب أن تسلم إلى مجلس الوصاية الذي خلف المجلس العصبة ولا يجوز كان الاعتداد لا برقم ولا بإقليم ولا بأي أمر آخر إلا بالقرار 181 في الواقع أن هذا القرار صدر عن الجمعية العامة ونحن 
عادة نقول أن قرارات الجمعية العامة غير ملزمة لأنها وفقاً للمادة عشرة من ميثاق الأمم المتحدة تصل قرارات الجمعية العامة بشكل توصيات ولكن هذا القرار 181 والقرار الآخر 194 القاضي بحق عودة الشعب الشعب اللاجئ الفلسطيني إلى بالعربي ترجموها إلى دياره لا to their homes to return to their homes على كل حال السند الآخر الذي سنواصل الذي عملت إسرائيل على إعلان دولتها هو صك الانتداب على فلسطين وأنا يعني أتعجب كيف أن قسم كبير من الذين كتبوا كانوا يركزون دائما على وعد بلفور هذا الإعلان إعلان بلفور بلفور ديكلاريشن لم يمنح اليهود أي دولة منحهم فقط مركز أو ناشونال هوم في فلسطين وليس في كل فلسطين وهذا ما أكدته بريطانيا نفسها في المذكرة التي تحدث عنها زميلي مذكرة 1922 عندما رفضت بريطانيا أن تعتبر اليهود في فلسطين كما هم الإنجليز في بريطانيا وكان التصويب في تلك المذكرة يقول أن الوعد كان بمثابة بيت بيت وطني وليس دولة ما الذي قرر تطوير إعلان وليس وعد إعلان بالفور هو صك الانتداب على فلسطين وهو يختلف ويخالف سكوك الانتداب الأخرى التي ذكرتها المادة 22 من عهد عصبة الأمم وبالتالي هذا الصك هو النص الدولي الأول الذي صدر عن عصبة الأمم وليس عن دولة بريطانيا أو غيرها علما أن مسؤولية بريطانيا التقصيرية أثناء الانتداب لا تزال قائمة وكذلك بالوعد ذاته ولكن السك الانتداب هو الوثيقة التي صدرت عن عصبة الأمم عن مجلس عصبة الأمم الذي أصدرها وكلف مجلس العصبة وكلف بريطانيا أن تكون الدولة المنتدبة على فلسطين والعراق على فلسطين الحديث عن فلسطين إذن 
هذا النص هو الذي أدخل في متنه في متنه ضرورة تشجيع اليهود بالذهاب إلى فلسطين وكأنها مهمة الدولة المنتدبة في الرحيل إلى فلسطين لكي يتكاثر عددهم هذا الانتداب قرر أن في النهاية يمكن للقرار 47 181 أن يصبح قابلا للتنفيذ لكي نتذكر الأسماء التواريخ إعلان بالفور كان 1917 الصك الانتداب 22 وبالتالي كان يعني الحديث بدأ عن القرار وصك الانتداب هو الذي هو المشكو منه في الواقع لأنه صك صدر عن هيئة دولية هي عصبة الأمم ولكن ما الذي فات العرب والفلسطينيين في التنبه إلى ذلك أولا أن القرار 181 اعترف بوجود دولة فلسطينية سماها دولة عربية ذات حدود واضحة هذا أولا ثانيا صك المية واحدة وثمانين نفسه حدد الديدلاين حدد نهاية إنجاز هذا الموضوع في نهاية ألف وتسعمية وثمانية وأربعين في لألكن التاريخ في آخر آخر آب ألف وتسعمية وثمانية أو نحن عم نحكي بالقرار مية وسبعة ألف وتسعمية وثمانية ذاته أكد أن الـ 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 هذا القرار يجب أن ينفذ في تسعة وعشرين هو صدر ب 29/11 والديدلاين كان في 1948 هلا اقول هذا القرار اصدر عده مواد او كان باعثا لعده مواد مع سك الانتداب ها لتفعيل البنود المتعلقة بالدولتين وبالتدويل أيضا الانتداب طلب مجلس العصبة وفقا للمادة 22 من ميثاق العصبة طلب أن تقوم الدولة المنتدبة ب إعلان دستور للدولة الفلسطينية وإصدار جنسية بقانون من قبل الدولة المنتدبة 
للدولة الفلسطينية ورسم حدود وإصدار أو تشكيل هيئات تشريعية وتنفيذية وأداة إدارية لهذه الدولة عم نحكي عن المجلس العصبة ماذا طلب وبالفعل وبالرغم من المندوب السامي البريطاني أنذاك وبالرغم من تلكؤ بريطانيا إلا أنها لم تتخلف عن هذه المهام المكلفة بها وفقا لميثاق العصبة إذا نحن نعتبر في القانون الدستوري أن ثمة مكونات لأي كيان سياسي على إقليم معين أن يستكمل مكوناته الدستورية conditions of statehood ومع إنشاء الدستور الفلسطيني ومع إنشاء الجنسية كان يمكن آنذاك أن تحدد الدولة الفلسطينية في ذلك الوقت أن تعلن في ذلك الوقت يعني في نهاية آب 1948 وفقا لما قامت به بريطانيا كدولة منتدبة بعد ذلك طبعا أصبحت إسرائيل تقوم بأمور واقعة وهذا شأن أساسي من شؤون سياستها الخارجية أن تقوم أحيانا بوعد من دون اعتراض انسجاما مع الضغوط المقدمة في طاولة المفاوضات ثم تقوم بمخالفة هذا الوعد إسرائيل عندما قدمت طلب للانضمام إلى الأمم المتحدة بعد إعلان استقلالها سنة 1948 رفض الطلب لأنها كانت في حالة حرب والمادة أربعة من الميثاق تقول أن الدولة يجب أن تكون محبة للسلام أجلت الوعد وبعد إنجاز اتفاقات الهدنة قدمت طلبا آخر للانضمام إلى الأمم المتحدة قبل الطلب مجلس الأمن رفعه إلى الجمعية العامة لبت هذا الطلب إيجابا الجمعية العامة وللمرة الأولى والوحيدة في تاريخها اشترطت على إسرائيل أن تقدم تعهدا مزدوجا خطيا ولا يزال محفوظ في أرشيف الأمم المتحدة أنها تسعى إلى المساعدة في تنفيذ القرارين 181 و 194 حق العودة للمهاجرين للاجئين الفلسطينيين ولا يزال هذا التعهد موجودا بدليل أن الجمعية العامة سنة 1982 
أيضا للمرة الأولى في تاريخها أصدرت قرارا بعزل إسرائيل طلبت من الدول أن تعزل إسرائيل وأن لا تقوم بأي معاملات معها وأن لا تنقل سفاراتها أو التي نقلت أن تعود بسفاراتها عن القدس لأنها القدس الشرقية لأنها محتلة منذ العام 1967 ويسري عليها ما يسري على كل مناطق المحتلة يعني القوة القائمة بالاحتلال لا يجوز أن تضم ولا أن تحتل ولا أن تنقل أي من مواطنيها المدنيين أو عسكريين إلى هذه الأرض المحتلة من سنة ب 82 صدر هذا القرار ومن حيثياته أن إسرائيل لم تعد دولة محبة للسلام وأنها نقضت أحكام الميثاق الأمم المتحدة وكذلك نقضت التعهد المزدوج المقدم لها منذ مقدم للجمعية يعني منذ العام تسعة وأربعين يعني الذي أقوله الآن أن اللوم ليس على على اليهود فقط لأنهم أحسنوا التملص والتوحش وكل الموبقات التي نعرفها ولكن اللوم في الواقع برأيي أنا على الأقل وآمل أن تشاركوني الرأي يعني سبب التقصير العربي لأننا قد نكتفي مثلا بإنجاز معين ولا نتابعه ولا نتابعه يعني بعطي آخر مثل مسألة الجدار مسألة عندما قامت الجمعية بشطب قرارها الشهير من سنة الخمسة وسبعين باعتبار الصهيونية شكل من أشكال التمييز كل هذه الأمور اليوم اليوم عندما قدم رئيس السلطة الفلسطينية طلبا للانتمام إلى الأمم المتحدة سنة 2011 استند في حيثيات طلبه إلى القرار 181 لماذا؟ لأنه منذ العام 1988 يعني عند إعلان الدولة الفلسطينية شايك؟ رحبت الجمعية العامة بهذا الطلب وذكرت بما أن القرار 181 يلحظ وجود دولة عربية في فلسطين نحن الجمعية بأكثرية كبيرة آنذاك أنا أتحدث هنا عن الجمعية العامة بال ب 88 بكانون الاول 88 يعني مباشره بعد اعلان الدوله الفلسطينيه هلا رحبت وقررت ابدال 
اسم المنظمة باسم فلسطين يعني ال 2011 صار اسم الدولة الفلسطينية ولا تزال مراقبا في الجمعية العامة يعني ما تغير شيء وكأنه الدولة يعني دخلتها وهي تسمي يعني كل الدول مستقلة دول بالأكيد المهم استند إلى المية واحدة وثمانين وهو لا يزال فاعلا لغاية اليوم هلا الملاحظ انه أنا ذاك سنة 88 اعترفت بفلسطين خلصت اعترفت بفلسطين اكثر من مئة دولة اخرى ولكن مع اوسلو وما تبع اوسلو ها لم يصر إلى تفعيل هذه الاعترافات في الواقع وكان الهدف طبعا الوصول للأمم المتحدة أنا دائما استعرض يعني أعرض مثل سويسرا معظم الوكالات المتخصصة في الأمم المتحدة موجودة في جنيف ومع ذلك لم تدخل سويسرا إلى الأمم المتحدة إلا في العام 2002 شكراً لإصغائكم شكراً دكتور كنت بدي أحكي بعد 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 معذرة دكتور مصري بث بما أنه عندنا سكايب مع دكتور كاميل منصور اضطرينا أنه نطلب منك شوية قليل I'll go back to English uh, we will now listen to Dr. Kamil Mansour, who is the IPS uh, Secretary General and uh, Professor of uh, Law uh, from Birzeit University and from La Sorbonne. And uh, again, for family health reasons, he cannot be with us. So we will see him on Skype. And then we will have a discussion on the four papers, which are under international legitimacy and, and British rule together. So maybe you would like to go and sit over there if you want to listen to him. And uh, everything is fine with the contact with Skype. So can you hear us well? Oh, very good, excellent. Shukran, Hanin. Yes, you're, you're ready to start, Doctor. I'm ready. Yes. <laughs> Okay. Uh, so uh, the topic of my presentation concerns Palestinian statehood from the partition plan to striving for admission at the UN. Since the Palestine National Council declared independence in Algiers in 1988, of Palestinian statehood 
has dominated the diplomatic activity and has been used as a mobilizing motto to the Palestinian internal theme. This reached its climax in September 2011 when Mahmoud Abbas submitted the application of the State of Palestine for admission to membership in the UN. It is interesting to note already that we explicitly based the application on UN General Assembly Resolution 181 of November 47, as well as the Declaration of Independence of Palestine on uh, 15 November 1988. I will try in this paper identify the turning points that have dotted the Palestinian journey from the rejection of, of the partition plan to its acceptance and in so doing I will try to understand the significance of each turning point in terms that are usually constitutive of a state i.e. I mean, territory, people, agency, or what we usually call government. But I will use here uh, the term decision-making actor. I will not deal here with the means of action that were used in Palestinian state to strategy, such as military means or popular action. I will restrict myself to broad references to diplomacy. Finally, I will conclude by suggesting the function that is functioned by the Palestinian form or statehood. You will notice that I will very often distinguish between an imagined state and a programmatic state. By imagined state, I mean a state for the far off future, one that is hoped for, but not really so. The term used here has nothing to do with Benedict Anderson's imagined communities. By programmatic state, I mean one that is actively thought, even if the prevailing conditions don't permit it to be active. Now first, the partition resolution. Naturally, I will start with the partition resolution itself. A resolution that, all, that we all know was rejected by the Palestinians and the Arab states at the UN. The purpose of the resolution, in my mind, was not to create two states in Mandate Palestine. Its purpose was to create an Israeli state and the, the resolution carved the borders in such a way that the Israeli state included almost all Jewish inhabitants of Palestine, except naturally those living in the area of the Jerusalem Corpus Separatum. Thus, the resolution managed to accommodate 98% of the Jewish inhabitants within the Jewish state without any concern that, that, that 
such as this would be composed of almost half ups and half twos. So the issue is not really whether they choose the Jewish community in Palestine. So, so the issue is not whether the issue got a bigger surface area than the Arabs. It is whether the dense spatial occupancy of the Arabs is the proposed Jewish state was taken into account. And it was not. It is significant to observe that the ADSCO recognized in its report when it's known that the demerit of its scheme, uh, what, sorry, it is, it, it, the, the ADSCO recognized when it noted that the demerit of its scheme was that in the Jewish state, there will be a considerable minority of Arabs. But Anscope added that such a minority was inevitable. Why? Because more importantly, it said that one cannot disregard the specific purpose of the mandate and its application. Here, it can rise the fact of the mandate. The purpose of the UNSCOP recommendation and hence of resolution 81181 is to fulfill the 1922 mandate for Palestine as an act with the League of Nations. However, this attempt at understanding the purpose of the partition plan would be incomplete if we don't consider another line of continuity connecting the plan with the history of British domination over Palestine. I'm referring here to the PM Commission report of July 1937. In its report, the Commission proposed to partition Palestine into three parts. Well, for one, one side, British gave, then a Jewish state and another state. Let's note in this regard Two meaningful ideas in the report. First, the report proposed that the Arab state be incorporated into Transjordan after about 1937. And second, the peer report called for the forcible transfer, if necessary, the Palestinian population out of the Jewish state. This the PN Commission seemed to have understood that given the numeric minority of the issue in Palestine and its special distribution over the land, the successful establishment of a Jewish state and entailed an expulsion of Palestinians and the incorporation of the remaining areas into Transjordan. I don't want to infer from the above that the expulsion and the non-establishment of the proposed Arab state during the Nakba were inscribed in the partition resolution itself. But there is no doubt that they were at least consistent with the purpose of the sponsor of the resolution and with the plans of the Zionist supporters of the resolution. Of course, Additional factors 
contributed to the, to the subsequent events, divisions within the Palestinian leadership, and its weakness, the Jordanian drive supported by the British, and the Arab military unpreparedness and inter-Arab competition. In any case, the Palestinian rejection of the Palestine plan, the partition plan, did not mean rejection Palestinian statehood. Let me refer here to the formation of the old Palestine government in Gaza, in September 48, and played an emotional and symbolic role among Palestinians at the time. But in terms of power politics, the old Palestine government was essentially an expression of Egypt and the Arab League reservation over Jordanian ambition, and it quickly, it quickly became an empty shape. Both its imagined state, I mean a state of the whole of Palestine, and its programmatic state, I mean the part of Palestine not occupied by, by the state of Israel, were shattered within three months after formation of the old Palestine government. Now what happened next? The ten, uh, almost 10 years after the end of time. The Palestinians discriminated in the host countries and under different governments had no longer a unified leadership that could credibly pretend to be a decision-making What the Palestinians did was to enlist in and even to be at the forefront of Arab unity movements as if the imagined state from the ocean to the Gulf would automatically encompass the land of Palestine, making it unnecessary the recomposition, the recomposition of a properly Palestinian act. Now, the second turning point at the end of it. It took place in 59-60, with the call to establish a Palestinian entity, Kian Filostini. But this was confined within the realm of ideas and public debates only. We know that several factors contributed to it, among them, two deserve to be noted. The foundation of Fatah, with the experience gained from the Israeli occupation of Gaza in 56-57, and the self-organizing of young Palestinian activists in host countries, and especially in the Gaza. That one on, on one side, on the other side, the in Iraq. The term Kiyan was adopted in a recommendation of the Arab League, March uh, 59, but was devoid of any territorial connotation. Fatah went further in 1960. It called in Filastinuna for having a revolutionary entity in the remaining part of our homeland, meaning by Gaza West Bank. Another step occurred in 1964 with the establishment of the PLO. Though recognized by the Arab countries 
the PAO was then a mere superstructure, depending on Egypt, pretending without credibility to represent the Palestinians and devoid of any claim over a programmatic territory. In this regard, Egypt gave assurances to Jordan that the PLO would not have claims over the West Bank in 1964. However, in terms of perceptions, the creation of the PLO and the burgeoning of small activist groups in Palestinian communities in the Arab world revived the idea of a Palestinian identity distinct from the Arab state's identities and also the idea of a properly Palestinian militant identity. But all of this before 67 was far from constituting a decision-making entity. That was those debates, ideas, but no, not still, not yet a, a Palestinian autonomous act. Now, it is paradoxical because of the sending Arab defeat and the Israeli occupation of the Arab, of Arab land, including the whole Palestine. This provided the environment which facilitated the emergence in 68-69 of a Palestinian decision-making actor composed of an umbrella body and grassroots organizations, and which proudly affirmed their Palestinian identity and claimed with credibility that they, that they represent the Palestinian people. In terms of international relations, we have now a restructured PLO that could be viewed as a non-state actor with an international status. This actor, relatively quickly, developed the vision of a democratic state over the whole of Mandate Palestine. It seems to me that the vision of that state could be situated somewhere between a programmatic state and an imagined, imagined state. It was programmatic because it was the first time this 1948, that a credible Palestinian actor adopted the idea of statehood. But it also it was also imagined state, imagined vision, because liberating Palestine through armed struggle and forcing the Israeli to share power within single state could not be could not be thought as attainable under the prevailing conditions. I'm talking about. 68, 69, 70. Now, another turning point. The other turning point you see, is the aftermath of the uh, uh, war of 1967. Uh, why? Because in mid-70s, the Jordanian, the idea of statehood uh, becomes part of the agenda because 
of the possibility of Jordanian-Israeli negotiations sponsored by uh, Kissinger concerning the future of the West Bank. The PLO, the Palestinian leadership, had to choose one of two options in mid-74, with the possibility of Jordanian-Israeli negotiations sponsored by Kissinger. It was easier to advocate purity, reject negotiation on any basis other than the democratic state vision, elevating it to a neat imagined state vision, that was a possibility to, be, to remain pure, or to compete with Jordan and try to enter negotiations with the aim of governing the West Bank and Gaza. The PLO chose the second option by adopting a 10 point program at the Pakistan National Council that met in Cairo June 74. The PNC called then, I quote, for the establishment of the People's Independent Combatant National Authority over every part of Palestinian territory that is liberated. It seems to me. This was the main turning point on statehood as a programmatic object. For several years to come, the programmatic state over any part of Palestine will coexist with the imagined state over all of Palestine. All the big moves during the following years stemmed from that turning point such as seeking Arab recognition as sole representative of the Palestinian people, getting the status of an observer mission at the UN, working for UN uh, resolutions on Palestinian rights, especially rights to self-determination. I would say that even the Palestinian quasi-state such that the PLO developed in Lebanon between 77 and 82, whether by design or as an outcome of the civil war. So this quasi-state was used to serve a programmatic statehood strategy with complete and even arrogant disregard for Lebanese concerns the PLO sought to use its quasi-state Lebanon to enter negotiations with Israel from a position of strength and reach an, agree an agreement that would provide for the transfer of the state institution built in Lebanon to the sovereign Palestinian state in the West Bank and Gaza. We all know how the transferal strategy, what I call the transferal strategy, from Lebanon to West Bank Gaza. We all know how the transferal strategy was thwarted by Israel's 1982 invasion and the PIO withdrawal from Lebanon. What was left after the withdrawal was the following. A PIO 
It's a position of weakness. But still, a decision-making actor. The democratic state of, of Pakistan more distant than ever, even as an imagined state. And programmatic, a weakened programmatic West Bank Gaza state, but still alive. In this regard, now another point, or turning point, in this regard, the declaration of independence in Algiers in 1988 was significant because it entailed four new elements. The new, four new elements of, uh, involved in the declaration of independence. First, the declaration came about when the PLO regained part of its strength, thanks to the Intifada, to the first Intifada, and to the restoration of some unity among Palestinian organizations. Second, the PNC, the Palestine National Council, Justify senior statehood by reference to what? To resolution A181. The same resolution that their fathers had rejected in 47-48. However, this time, the Palestinians tried to convince themselves of the virtues of the resolution, but not, but not avoid giving legitimacy, at least implicitly, to the establishment of the Jewish state in their homeland. In any case, this meant the PNC abandoned the democratic state of the old Palestine, even as imagined state. Third, implication of uh, independence declaration. The, the PNC by a large majority, declared its acceptance of Security Council Resolution 242. That means the frontiers of 4 June 67, in order to be allowed to enter the negotiation room. By referring to 242, the PNC tried to accord its state program with what it called international legitimacy, and by so doing, reduced the territory it was demanding from 45% from of Palestine, as provided in Resolution 181, to a mere 22. Fourth, in terms of peoplehood, the Declaration of Independence gave up implicitly on its representativeness of the Palestinians in Israel, of the 48 Palestinians. It is true that the Palestinians in Israel had never been represented in the PNC, except through personalities who had left Israel, for instance, Mahmoud Darwish. But this was a de facto situation. Now, the PNC could no longer declare that it represented the whole of the Palestinian people after 40, after 88. Compared to the downsizing of 88 statehood program, in two of the dimensions, downsizing in territory, downsizing 
people who compared to this, there was, there was only one dimension that could be considered positive. This was the agency dimension. By issuing such a declaration, the PNC strengthened the diplomatic status of the PAO as an international actor. I will get later back to the importance of such a status, status in today's situation. So much for 1988. The subsequent turning point after 88, of course, the Oslo process. I will skip Madrid for in, uh, in my present, from my presentation today. Let me remind you that the Oslo Accord provided for the official recognition of the, of the state of Israel without specifying its borders, the borders of Israel, without specifying the borders of Israel, and did not include in exchange Israel's recognition Palestinian statehood. They did provide for the transfer of institutions and combatants to Gaza and the West Bank, and envisaged in the transfer strategy of the PIO leadership during its Lebanese years. But the transfer explicitly excluded Israel, was permitted to fractionalize territory interspersed with ever expanding settlements and bypass roads, specifically constructed for settlers and Israeli security forces. Finally, as we know, the accords opened a five-year interim period continues until today. What do the Oslo Accords and the way they were and are still implemented, what, does, what do they mean in terms of Palestinian statehood program? First, the PIO gave more than what was required by the so-called international legitimacy and gave more than what the U.S. itself asked. But the PLO did not get in return that the state it struggled for. No, it, it did, sorry, did not get in return the state that it struggled for. And was always, until today, asked for thing in new condition each time it submitted to the previous one. Second, in terms of territory, the PLO leadership already agreed in public pronouncement that borders be negotiated on the basis 67 lines on the basis and not be located on 67 lines. There is a difference between on the basis and be located. It also already accepted the concept of territorial swaps, territorial exchanges, thus adding serious ambiguities to its demands. Third, in terms of peoplehood, the mere fact of locating itself in the West Bank and Gaza and transforming itself, the fact, from a PA leadership to a PA leadership, authority leadership, caused the Palestinian leadership to marginalize the diaspora Palestinians, in addition to excluding 
the Palestinians of Israel. In other terms, the operative basis the Palestinian policy today is reduced to Gaza and West Bank Palestinians. And even excludes, in many respects, the East Jerusalem Palestinians. This exclusion marginalization of important elements, of important segments of the Palestinian people is more, I won't try to say, I would like to state here, this marginalization exclusion is more a result of Palestinian misguided policy than a behavior dictated by the Oslo court. Fourth, in terms of agency, several points should be. We are all aware of the grave of governance, of the grave issues of governance. Today, split between Gaza and West Bank authorities. Control of the population by security services, by Palestinian security. Failure to hold elections for 25 years now. A Palestinian state cannot be big on such basis. But we have to acknowledge, as the international actor, the PAOPA has maintained status. The third point now, 2011, you know, at the, it is within the impasse that it found itself after years of negotiations and confrontations that the PLO decided in summer 2011 to apply for full membership as a state at the UN, as a state at the UN. Some among you are surely aware that a number of Palestinian intellectuals and international experts raised grave concerns about such They noted that the General Assembly had recognized already the inalienable rights of the Palestinian people, including the right of return and determination. And the, the PAO that it was representative of the Palestinian people. Already for years, for years, the UN General Assembly had recognized this. So these Palestinians and experts have said, now the PAO, by applying for membership as representing a state over the West Bank and Gaza, would no longer represent the diaspora Palestinians and especially the refugees. It is interesting, it's interesting to note that as a response to these concerns, the Palestinian leadership did respond to these concerns. And in consequence, the Palestinian application for admission in September 2011 included an accompanying letter affirming that the application was made consistent consistent with the rights of the Palestinian refugees in accordance with international law and the relevant resolutions, including General Assembly Resolution 194 and with the status of the PAO as a sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. So uh, the PAO 
asked for admission and at the same time, the same time uh, made this affirmation in order to, have, to be on the safe side. As a U.S. veto, in any case, as a U.S. veto was expected, the PAO finally, as you know, did not push for effort on its application and the security council. A year later, in November 2012, it was downgraded path that means to go to the to get a vote resolution as uh, Palestine no member observer state status in the UN. Now I would like to, to conclude. If we have to summarize the Palestinian situation in so far as statehood concerned, we can say that we have a deficit in, terri in territoriality inflicted by Israel and a self-inflicted deficit in the governance of the Palestinian polity, whether because the Palestinian leadership has marginalized the Palestinian diaspora, has ignored democratic participation, or has failed to accommodate political pluralism and to prevent its division into two authorities. But compared to deficit in both territoriality and governance, we find a surplus in the world recognition of the PAO as international actor. Because so many countries recognize the Palestinian state, and several others are ready to do so under certain conditions, the Palestinian state, paradoxically today, a diplomatic state rather than territorial state. On the other hand, in terms of balance of power, Palestinian and Arab internal governments and US policy the prospect of getting dependence over the West Bank and Gaza is more remote than ever. The question then arises, is it advisable for the Parisian leadership to declare that it is putting aside its programmatic West Bank-Gaza statehood that has failed so far and to revert to all Palestine statehood, with whatever name, democratic state, binational state, one state solution. That's the question. The question arises. Let me tell you very spontaneously, not spontaneously, I mean very quickly, after so. I think it would be a serious error in terms of diplomatic positioning. First, this would mean that the Parisian leadership considers that the West Bank and Gaza, and Gaza are no longer occupied territories according to international law, but are part of the old Palestine is advocating, and where settlement, settlements can expand forever. Second, the Parisian leadership Demanding to be part of an encompassing 
Israeli political, Israeli Palestinian political system by soloing the Palestinian leadership to forfeit its status as an autonomous international actor. If the Palestinian leadership wants to be part of the old Palestine, it cannot go, it cannot, can no longer be, continue to be an international actor. However, the above does not mean that changes should not be made to vaccine strategy. The point I am making here is that any change in the vaccine strategy should be made in such a way as it does not jeopardize assets the Palestinians have gained through decades of struggle on the In particular, since I have been focusing in this presentation, diplomacy and Palestinian agents and not on strategies on the ground, I would like to add that the Palestinians should work at repairing, consolidating, and expanding PLO's representativeness of the Palestinian people. To repair, to consolidate, to expand the representative character. There has been sufficient debate about this, but it has not been followed by practical steps. However, there is a dimension in the issue of representativeness that has gained sufficient attention. And this relates to the place of the Palestinians Israel within the Palestinian national movement. I have advocated elsewhere some years ago for creating a space allowing for the involvement of the Palestinians, of the Israeli Palestinians. How for such for their involvement in the Palestinian uh, national movement. Camille, can we can we finish because we are I, 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 we don't have any more minute, time for minute. the discussion, please. One minute, one minute, one minute. My suggestion is to add to a reconstructed Palestine National Council another layer I have called the Palestine Congress, where PNC members and representatives of the Palestinian Israel would congregate as an official debating forum. This would open the way for the coexistence of the programmatic statehood strategy of a part of Palestine with the return of the imagined statehood vision of all of Palestine. Initiatives such as network, networking, creating pan-Palestinian associations, clubs, events, could be encouraged so as to nurture the imagined state at the grassroots level until such time strategic and political conditions arrive for transforming the imagined statehood vision over all of Palestine into a programmatic strategy. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tammy. Thank you, Dr. Camille. We can have now a discussion on all the four papers, or comments, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> Dr. Wick cannot uh, respond in the place of Dr. Rogan, but uh, he can hear the comments and he can say what he thinks. He's a professor himself here at UB. And uh, I am looking for Dr. Masri. Doc he, left. he left. He left. Well, that's 
unfortunate, but we, we, can, we can, for anybody who would like to comment, we have here a number of specialists. Please, Alexis, come. Um, I remind you that uh, we are invited to the opening of uh, the exhibition at uh, the Jaffet Library, which concerns Jerusalem in particular, old photographs of Jerusalem, and I think it's going to be a very beautiful one, and it happens that at 5.30 is the opening, so I invite you all who can to, to go there. Uh, we start by a question of Dr. Jabour, who asked to comment. I don't know which one of the papers, but you will tell us. Can we, can we give him the microphone, please? And yourself. Shukran jazeelan. Uhanli Dr. Kamil ala warakatihi. Ashkur Dr. Shafiq ala warakatihi aydan. Wa ashkuru khasatan li annahu ashar ila al-qarar 3379 الذي اتخذ عام 1975 الذي ألغي عام 1991 أحب أن أذكر بأن البعض قال أن القرار قرار مجلس الأمن 2334 الذي اتخذ في 23/12/2016 قد يتعرض لنفس مصير القرار 3379 هذا أمر يحسن أن ننتبه إليه لكنني أحب أن أوجه سؤالا إلى محاضر من جامع من سانت أنتوني سانت أنتوني أنا بروفيسور روجن بروفيسور روجن أنا حضرت فيها سنة 76 مع هوبود ومع روجر أوين أحب أن أقول أنه تحدث عن صدور وعد بالفرقة ضرورة من ضرورات الحرب لكن وزارة الخارجية البريطانية في نيسان الماضي أصدرت شرحاً لوعد بلفور وهذا الشرح لم يهتم به كثيرون هذا الشرح قال بأن وعد بلفور مبرر دينياً ومبرر تاريخياً ولكنه ناقص سياسياً لأنه لم ينص على الحقوق السياسية للشعب الفلسطيني هذا التصريح البريطاني الجديد الذي يشرح وعد بلفور لم يحظى بأي اهتمام من الدول من الحكومات العربية ولا حتى من مركز أبحاث النشط كمؤسسة الدراسات الفلسطينية مثلا لكن أحب أن أسأل صديقنا ضيفنا العزيز هل هذا بروفيسور روكن هل أسار هذا الشرح البريطاني هل أسارت مئوية وعد بلفور ردود فعل مراجعات تصريحات متناقضة ندوات مناقشات بين الأكاديميين البريطانيين لا سيما منهم المعنيون بالشرق الأوسط لا سيما منهم بجزمة بريزميز بريتيش ميدل إيسترن سوسايتي شكرا جزيلا شكرا نجمع كم سؤال وبعدين تفضل أنا اسمي جابر سليمان عندي تعليق وسؤال أشار بعض المتحدثين إلى تاريخية قيام الدولة الفلسطينية لم تكن لم يكن قبول فلسطين عضو دولة غير مرقمة متحدة المحاولة الأولى لإقامة الدولة الفلسطينية بالخمسة وعشرين كان في مسود الدستور وكان في قانون جنسية فلسطيني كانت أحد المحاولة الأولى المبكرة لإقامة الدولة الفلسطينية ولم تنجح كلنا نعرف الأسباب 
الثانية إعلان بالدورة المجلس الوطني ب 1988 ثم جاءت المحاولة الأخيرة كان سؤالي ودي لغسل الدكتور شفية بس مش موجود أي محاولة كانت أصلب قانونيا من المحاولات الثلاث وخصوصا أن المحاولة الأخيرة ماذا أضافت من ناحية القانونية منظمة التحرير كانت عضو مراقب بالأمم المتحدة وكان لديه كثير من الامتيازات والحضور كثير من المؤتمرات الدولية وعلاقات دبلوماسية فماذا أضافت وما يتصل به من سؤال هل أدى المحاولة الأخيرة إلى تفتيت أو دعنا نقول تشتيت تمثيل الفلسطيني بين منظمة التحرير وبين الدولة الفلسطينية وخصوصا أن ولاية الدولة مقصورة أو سؤال هل هي مقتصرة على الضفة الغربية وقطاع غزة ماذا عن الشتات الفلسطيني سؤال أخير متصل بالسؤال الأول ما هي المفاعيل القانونية إذا كانت هذه المحاولة كانت محاولة صلبة من ناحية القانونية ما هي المفاعيل القانونية الاعتراف بدولة فلسطين على الشتات الفلسطيني وبشكل خاص اللاجئون الفلسطينيين في لبنان بالتشريعات اللبنانية في ما في كونسيستنسي في بقانون التملك الفلسطيني ستيتلس إنسان ما عنده بلد بقانون العمل يمكن تم الغاء مبدا العمل مثل ولكن بالنقابات كمان الفلسطيني اجنبي فما هي المفاعيل القانونيه لاعتراف لبنان او الاعتراف بدوله فلسطين طب ما كان عندنا اتفاقيه القاهره التي الغت من طرف واحد ولا اتحدث عن جانب وهي اتفاقيه امنيه وعسكريه ولكني اتحدث عن الماده الاولى من الاتفاقيه التي كانت تنص على ضروره منح الفلسطينيين حقوق مدنيه في لبنان شكرا شكرا على على الاسئله يعني كما تلاحظون دكتور مصري اضطر يترك ولكن ممكن انه حدا ثاني بحب يجاوب على السؤال اللي قاله دكتور انيس انت اكيد عندك خبر عن هذه المحاولات السابقه وشو شو اذا تراجعت وليش تراجعت او اذا تقدمنا او شو رايك بتطور موضوع الاعتراف بالنسبة للأمور اللي بتخص بالذات اللاجئين في لبنان يمكن دكتور طارق بقدر يفيدنا وبالنسبة للسؤال اللي لبروفيسور روجن اللي هو أيضا سؤال مهم جدا دكتور ويكس بول إنه هو ما بيعرف الوضع بإنجلترا تيجاوب محل بروفيسور روجن هل في اهتمام أنا أول مرة أنا نفسي بسمع بهذا الإعلان اللي بي اللي عملوه يعني فترة المئة عام ايوه نحن نحن ركزنا على طلب الاعتذار بس ما سمعنا اذا رشيد بيعرف او كميل اذا كميل فيك تجاوبنا عن هذا السؤال شو كان شو كان رد الفعل للتصريح البريطاني بذكرى ال سنه عنا كجواب للطرف الفلسطيني بس خلينا نبقى بالسؤال الاول اللي هو دكتور انيس بده يحكي لنا عنه شكرا المحاولة الأولى اللي أو كان المفروض أن تقع الاعتراف بدولة فلسطين بعد قرار التقسيم وهذا لم يحدث بسبب ملابسات دولية لأنه كان في هناك تواطؤ على أن لا تقوم دولة فلسطينية وكانت هذه إحدى الآليات التي استخدمتها الدبلوماسية الصهيونية في إحباط قبول فلسطين كدولة 
أو الاعتراف بها كدولة أو أن تنشأ كدولة لأنه حسب ما قال بنغوريون في الجلسة السرية في 13-5-1948 نحن إذا اعترفنا بقرار التقسيم لا يعني أننا انتهينا أيوة. ولذلك تم إحباطها المحاولة الثانية اللي هي كانت حكومة عموم فلسطين التي أنشئت في غزة وكانت هذه إحدى المحاولات إلا أنها كانت أكثر أقرب إلى النكايات الدبلوماسية منها إلى حق تقرير مصير بمفهوم أن الشعب الفلسطيني كان يطمح لذلك ولذلك لم تنجح هذه التجربة وقتلت في في مهدها حكى عنها الدكتور كاميلا يا التجربة الثالثة اللي هي يجب أن لا ننسى أنه الحكومة الأردنية في عشرين اتناش الف أعلنت الأحكام العرفية في مناطق الضفة الغربية التي كانت تحت سيطرة الجيش الأردني و في في ذلك اليوم عدلت الحكومة الأردنية قانون الجنسية الأردني الصادر عام 1928 والتعديل ألبس الأردن الفلسطيني الفلسطينيين سواء في الضفة الغربية أو الذين لجأوا إلى الضفة الشرقية ألبسهم جميعا الجنسية الأردنية في 1950 يعني بعد تقريبا اقل من ست اشهر تمت انتخابات متساويه العدد بين الفلسطينيين والشرق اردنيين كان في هناك 40 نائب عقدوا جلسه لمجلس النواب الاردني واعلن ضم الضفتين في تفسيري انه هذه ممارسه لحق تقرير المصير الفلسطيني بالاتحاد مع الشعب الاردني. بس هذا تفسير قد قد يقدح فيه يعني. المحاوله الثالثه اللي هي او المحاوله الرابعه اللي هي ما يسمى اعلان الجزائر. اعلان الجزائر كما ذكرت هذا الصباح هي عباره كانت عن نوع من البهلوانيه السياسيه. لأن القيادة السياسية كانت تريد أن تمرر القرار 242 ولا يوجد طريقة لتمريره إلا بعمل شوغر كوتينج فالشوغر كوتينج اللي عمله أبو عمار الله يرحمه إنه قال لهم بنعطيكم دولة وين هالدولة ما حدا بيعرف إلا في طيارته فتم إعلان الدولة والعجيب الغريب إنه قادة الثورة الفلسطينية المجتمعين في الجزائر صاروا يتحاضنوا ويبوسوا بعض ويباركوا لبعض كأنه الدولة قامت وهذه محاولة عيب إنه أن نعيدها أو نسترجحها لأنها لا تليق بنضال شعب فلسطين هي بهلوانية كانت لم تكن أي شيء لا علاقة لها بالدولة إلا الاسم الآن بعد أوسلو قالوا لنا أنه يوجد دولة وهذه كمان أنذر شوغر كوتينج لتمرير 
المطب الساخن الذي وقعت به القيادة السياسية الفلسطينية حين قال حين دخلت أوسلو أوسلو دخلنا في نفق وحتى الآن نتلمس طريقنا داخل النفق لم نخرج منه 25 عام وهم أبو مازن راح على الجمعية العامة ورجع بكرسي أنه قبلت فلسطين دولة لا يوجد قيمة بالمطلق لهذا الشيء أنه تم الاعتراف بفلسطين دولة القيمة الوحيدة لذلك هو أمر واحد إمكانية أن تنضم فلسطين إلى ميثاق روما لأن فلسطين منذ حرب حرب 67 ظل العالم يحتضنها ويطبق عليها ولها المعايير الدولية سواء اتفاقيات جنيف أو محاربة التمييز العنصري أو الخروقات الأخرى اللي بيعرفها القانون الدولي الإشي الوحيد أنه ننضم إلى ميثاق روما انضمينا لميثاق روما ودفع لنا الثمن أن نسكت والآن بنعرف ليش سكتنا أنه لما الكونغرس الأخير ناقش المعون المالية التي تعطى للسلطة قطعت أو خفضت قيمة هذه المعونة لأن بعض الفلسطينيين بدأوا يطالبوا بالذهاب إلى لاهاي بينما كان التعهد من القيادة الفلسطينية أنه ما نذهب ولا نلاحق المواطنين الإسرائيليين شكرا شكرا دكتور بروفيسور ويكس maybe you can transmit to Professor Rogan that the question addressed to him by Dr. Delroux is uh, what about this last declaration? Does it mean really what it says that, uh, of course, they, they're very proud for religious and political reasons that they made the, the declaration, but that does not exclude the right of the Palestinians. And we, at least we can transmit the question, but Dr. Ricks doesn't think that it is his job to answer instead. Um, باختضاب شديد تعليقا على الكلام اخينا جابر فيما يخص الفلسطينيين في لبنان الفلسطينيون في لبنان استثنوا من بعض القوانين لا سيما قانون التملك في المرحله الاولى بوصفهم اجانب ثم استثنوا مره ثانيه بوصفهم ليسوا اجانب استثنوا مرتين لأن المرة الثانية استثنوا لأن لا دولة لهم أعطي بقية العرب حق التملك في لبنان لكن لكن طالما أن ليس للفلسطينيين دولة فلا يمكن أن تكون بيننا وبين دولتهم معاملة بالمثل لذلك استثنوا من قانون التملك فبالتالي بإقرار هذا القانون بمجلس النواب يعني ضرب ضرب صفحا عن كل ما جاء في مقدمه اتفاق القاهره وقبل وبعد. لكن الأسوأ من هذا وذاك هو اننا في اعتقد حكومه فؤاد السنيوره الثانيه اردنا ان نوقع اتفاقيه مقر تسمح بقيام سفاره فلسطين. وعارض ذلك عارضت ذلك جهه سياسيه معروفه لاسباب معروفه 
لانها اعتبرت اننا اذا عاملنا فلسطين بوصفها دوله نكون اعترفنا بالسلطه الوطنيه الفلسطينيه الخائنه المتامره فكان مشروع اتفاقيه المقر سببا لتراجع اضافي عن الاعتراف اللبناني بالدوله الفلسطينيه لعلهم اليوم في اجتماع اسطنبول الخطاب اللبناني كان كان ناري فلعل لعل لعل قرار اسطنبول يؤدي الى اعتراف ولعل هذا الاعتراف يسهم بتحسين اوضاع الفلسطينيين المدنيه والسياسيه وهو امر لم نتمكن كما تعرف ويعرف الكثيرون من الحصول عليه بسبب المعارضه السياسيه للدوله الفلسطينيه بحجه الخلط بين الدوله والسلطه. شكرا دكتور طارق. دكتور كميل تفضل. انا بحب يعني ارد على اخ جابر جابر سليمان لما قال انه طيب شو شو ربحنا؟ لما صارت فلسطين تعتبر عضو دولة مراقبة غير عضو يعني خليني يمكن هذا اللي حبيت اركز عليه انه مهم جدا لفلسطين ان تكون فاعل دولان انترناشونال فاعل فاعل دولي يعني انترناشونال اكتر وبنعرف كلنا نحن فاعلين دوليين حاليا هي الدول والمنظمات الدولية بفضل نضال الشعب الفلسطيني الطويل منظمة التحرير مع انه ما كانت دولة ولا منظمة دولية قدرت بثبات من ست اخر الستينات والسبعينات ان تصبح يعني فاعل دولي انترناشونال انما هذا فراجايل يعني مش ثابت عندما لما بتيجي الولايات المتحده خلال اسبوعين ثلاث الماضي بتهدد باقفال سفاره فلسطين مكتب منظمه التحرير في واشنطن، شو دلالته؟ نحن عارفين انه سياسه ترامب يمكن ما يكون في دوله فلسطينيه. اذا ما في دوله فلسطينيه اذا هذا هو الافق ما في دوله، يعني في حكم ذاتي. اذا حيكون في حكم ذاتي فلسطيني في ضمن السيطره الاسرائيليه يعني الفلسطينيين منظمة التحرير خارج فلسطين صارت اسم مسمى لسوء الحظ يعني اذا هيك صار أنا ما عدنا ما عاد الفلسطينيين يشكلون بيشكلون انترناشونال اكتر من هنا التجديد على انه فلسطين كمان الاخ انيس بنظام روما موجودين بالينسكو كعضو كعضو كامل عضويه ممكن يكونوا موجودين بانظمه منظمات دوليه اخرى كدوله كثير مهم لانه هذا بحافظ على كونهم انترناشونال اكتر نحن حاجه حاجه في عشر سنوات القادمه 20 سنه قادمه ايش راح يكون في دوله فلسطينيه بتضيف وهز انما عايزين اكيد من جهه على الارض الصمود هذا 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 خارج موضوع اليوم انا انما على المستوى الدبلوماسي يجب ان نحافظ على كوننا انترناشونال اكتر وحاليا لا يمكن ان نثبت ذلك الا اذا كنا ستيت اكتر وصرنا معترفين بجزء كبير من العالم كستيت اكتر 
رجاء نحن عايزين حافظ على هالستيتوس هذا على على وضع على مكانه ستيت اكثر وان والمثل يعني بالفعل ما يؤشر ذلك هو خطوه امريكا بالنسبه لاكبار مكنه هذا معناته انه انتم ما في دور لكم معناتها بدنا شكرا دكتور شكرا دكتور كميل شكرا للجميع ثانك يو فور ايفريبادي ثانك يو فور دكتور ويك فور ريبليسينج دكتور روجن تو هوم وي سند اور كوندولنسز اند وي ترانسميت ذا كويستشن اند وي تيل هيم ذات وي ابريشيتد ا لوت اوف بيبر بارتيكولي ريد باي يو فيري ويل ريد باي يو اي وود لايك تو ريمايند يو بحب اذكركم اظن الجميع ما عدا صاحبي دومينيك ما بيعرف عربي بكره الجلسه عن الحركه الصهيونيه وعندنا مداخله من الان جريش ومداخله من دومينيك فيدال ومداخله من مدر اسيس ثرو سكايب ومداخله من دكتور اشقر ورئيس الجلسه محمد علي الخالدي ومنبلس الجلسه الاولى تبع الصباح الساعه 9:30 وفي جلسه بعد الظهر على الرد الفعل الفلسطيني لكل هذا برئاسه دكتور بشاره دوماني. شكرا على تواجدكم خلال اليوم الطويل ولك المشيق واللي بغذي الفكر وان شاء الله بنكمل بكره. شكرا جزيلا. شكرا لكم.